In your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. It has been a busy day and it's been a good day. What we're planning on doing is uh, <clears throat> we'll, we'll start this part today and then we'll end with Q&A questions and answers uh, next week. So we won't get through the whole thing today. Uh, I just knew with, with baptism and everything else it wasn't going to happen. It, in one sense, seems odd. I mean, today's Valentine's Day. We're talking about this subject on Valentine's Day. But then again, it's good to know what true love is. Um, you know, Martin Luther said this in defending the gospel, but it really applies to so much of, um, of truth. And again, Martin Luther lived back 500 plus years ago. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that very moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. In other words... All these things that we could be talking about, but if the world is attacking that point, and we back down on that point, then we are not being a good soldier. And when it comes to this whole subject of what is a marriage, that's a huge subject, right? Because in the beginning, God created man and woman, brought them together, said to leave, cleave, in one flesh, and, 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 should, and that is a marriage. One man, one woman committed to each other until death do them part. So again, this is, this is a big thing. And again, the battle rages, and many times we back down. And my, and my greatest concern is, uh, as I was saying to the, uh, uh, talking to the ABF, um, you know, trials and suffering, and, and, and uh, trials especially, bring out either the best or the worst in people. And this is the moment I think the church is either going to rise up, or you're going to find a lot of Christians and a lot of churches that are not going to rise up to the... To the, uh, to the standard of truth, this is what God said. People will be backing down. And, and quite honestly, this is such a big issue, we need each other. See, we need the encouragement of each other. And when someone uh, uh, buckles, that only gives other people more reason to buckle themselves. Do you see what I'm saying? We have to stand together on this issue. We have to say, this is what the Lord says, and we're not going to bow uh, to any other idol. We have to stand together. Now again, just in quick review, and I mean very quick review, we, we have seen some things uh, from the Word of God up to this point. One of them is that in the Old Testament, we find that all homosexuality is wrong. Uh, but we do not want to put them in the category of us and them. If you could show me that one uh, uh, um, chart, the chart. No, the one that says the gospel story. And again, this is just in quick review because I want to make sure that whatever I say today, you have the context of what we have said in previous uh, um, weeks. Again, sometimes we think of homosexuality as they are not like us. But again, creation tells us what? We are all created in God's image. We are all created in God's image. It's not an us-them. And then sometimes we think their sin is not like ours. Well, it may be unnatural, but the reality is this. We have all turned aside. We are all sinners. So again, it's not an us-them mentality. They are defined by their sin, and that is true. And we're going to talk about that. That is their identity. However, before Christ, we are all identified with our sin. See, we get a new identity in Jesus Christ. That's the point. In other words, or let's just go on. Uh, can they change? Well, the reality is we can all change in Christ. So it's not an us and them. It, and I think that is one of the things that has, it has been so detrimental. Christians have a tendency to move away from those who absolutely need the gospel. Because we look at it like that. That's them. And we're here, and they're different. No, they're sinners. 
And they need, a, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we took you to Romans chapter 1. If you're there, verse 16, it says, that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And what he's saying is, is through faith that the righteousness of God is imputed to a believer, to one who believes, faith. And again, you might say, well, who is that person? Well, verse 18 says, look at, I just want you very quickly, because this is Paul's argument, that all have sinned, all have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, uh, we all have been those who have known God but have rejected who God is until God, again, if you're a believer, uh, through his spirit has made us alive to believe. In other words, we are rejecters of God. That's all. And he gave us over verses 24, 26, and 28. But he just uses that saying, look at, look at how bad humanity, not homosexuals, humanity have exchanged the truth for a lie. His whole point is, is that we are all sinners, we are all condemned. There is no us, them, we're all in the same pot, we're all condemned. And, though he, and then he goes to chapter, in fact, he even says, look at in verse uh, 28, the debased mind, but then he tells, what does the debased mind look like? Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud. I mean, the list goes on. Disobedient to parents. End of verse 30. Uh, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving. And goes on. What is he saying? Everyone is sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. Now, let me just throw out a couple other things, though. It is tempting to think, though, that all sins are equally sinful. Now, that is not true, though. In other words, we're all sinners, we're all condemned, but not every sin is equally sinful. Now, some of you might immediately say, but James 2.10 says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. And that is true. I mean, James says that. Think of a glass, a, a pane of glass. And if I took a hammer and just hit it in one spot, it would shatter the whole thing, right? That's James 2, verse 10. However... Not every sin is equal in its sinfulness. There are degrees of sinfulness, in other words. See, not all sins are equal, as one man said. They're not equal in ambition. In other words, the conscious rebelliousness of that sin. They're not all equal in ambition. They're not all equal in its context. Some sins are uh, against nature and other sins are not. In fact, some sins are called abominations, others are not. Some sins in the Old Testament were, um, the consequence was the capital punishment, you die, other sins weren't. Actually, if you go to uh, the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20, it says the books were opened, and then from the books, judgment was made according to their works, it says, according to their works. Well, the point is, is that not every sin has the same consequence. There's going to be a judgment day and different sins receive different consequences. All are condemned, but the intense of their suffering is, is greater to some than others, if you will. Um, so it's, uh, all sins are not equal in ambition, context, context, or effect. In other words, there's different levels of criminality, as it were, uh, the penalty, the, the consequence. Um, so every sin is opposed to the infinite justice and righteousness of God and deserving of his righteous punishment, but not every sin is in the same intensity. It doesn't have the same consequence. And I, I left you with a couple questions. In, in Romans 1, is Paul saying that homosexuals are a particular separate class of sinners? And the answer is no. He's not saying that homosexuals are outside, this is what I'm saying, are outside of the grace of God, like they need a different uh, 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 path of salvation, or that their sin is unforgivable. He's not saying that. He's just saying in verse 28, or in, in uh, verse 27, that this is, I mean, he, he basically is saying it this way. You want to see how sinful man can be? 
You could even have persons that, of the same sex having sex with each other. That's how sinful man can be. That's all he's trying to say. You want me to show you sinfulness? Let me show you sinfulness. And he's using that as an example. But, second question, are homosexual acts a particular class of sinful act? The answer is yes. They are a, a particular class of sinful act. Because they are, as Scripture says, against nature. All savable. I mean, let, let's make sure of that. In fact, Nicole read this today out. Uh, in verse 20, chapter 3, verse 24 of Romans, Romans 3.24, after he said, all have sinned, what does he say? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Is that, for, is that salvation for a liar? Yes. Is that salvation for a sexually immoral? Yes. Is that salvation for one who is uh, thinking and behaving as a homosexual? Yes. All have sinned. All can be redeemed. Because why? The gospel is powerful. That's the point. The gospel is powerful. Now, let's go from there. That's complete review to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I gave you some notes. Um, I'm not going to for a couple reasons. One, sensitivity of the... the, uh, I don't want to get too graphic. Some young kids here. But it says this. I like how uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote, a new word from an old place. A new word from an old place. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Now this is our, what, fifth passage. We looked at Leviticus. Uh, a couple, well, we looked at Genesis 19, Leviticus, a couple passages. We looked at Romans 1, now we're in 1 Corinthians 6. There's about six main passages. 1 Timothy we won't look at. Um, but there's about six main passages that you go to that we've covered five of the six. But this is one of the main passages on this subject. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know? And, and when he says it, he's like this. Don't you know this? <laughs> Don't you know? Like this is obvious. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he adds, do not be deceived. Because you can be deceived on this. There are a lot of people who say they're Christians that are deceived in this. There are a lot of people running around saying that you can stay in certain sinful lifestyles and still be saved. And that's exactly what the passage is, is, uh, is teaching against. No. Because when you come to Jesus Christ, you come to him as what? Your Lord and Savior. And therefore, he is going to take you in a different direction. Are we all agreed to that, that when you get saved, you're going in a different direction? Because it's a new life. It's a new creation. All right? So don't you know this, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither. Now, again, he's a, he's a really big list. And this list are not all the people that you would normally put in the list. number of them are sexual sins, fornicators, idolaters. By the way, idolatry is, was often associated with sexual sin. Nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And I'm, I'm reading out of the New King James. But then look at verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous. (laughs) Although, you know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, most of them have to do with covetousness. It starts with no other God. It ends with thou shalt not covet. But in between, there's a number of things that have to do with covetousness. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He, He says it a second time. But look at the transition. And such were some of you, but... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of His God, uh, and by the Spirit of our God. So he's, he's making a transition. He said, "Unrighteous will not inherit. Don't be deceived." This is the list, and it's just a general list. He's just saying, "Listen, if if a person thinks they can stay in this sin, this is their identity. Understand, they are not saved." And one of the ways I believe Satan is, is, has really created havoc within the church of Jesus Christ is by this lie. The lie is this. You can stay in your sin and still be saved. Paul said, no. That, I mean, don't you know? This is not deep stuff here, guys. This is elementary in one sense. It's elementary. Why? Because when you come to Jesus Christ, you're coming to him, what? As Savior and Lord. Right? So, 
let's take just a let's take this apart for a few minutes. Again, we're going to zero right in on uh, the words homosexual and sodomites. Now, I understand that for some of you, like if you have the King James version, I don't know how many of you have the. I'm not talking New King. I'm saying King James. You're going to read the word effeminate and the abusers of themselves. Okay. If you have the NIV, you just read men who have sex with men. There's not even two words. There's two words in the Greek text, but in the English, there's only one word or one phrase if, if you have the NIV. If you have the New American Standard, you just read effeminate and homosexuals. If you have, let's see here, let me give you one last one. If you have the living translation, it actually says this, male prostitutes and those who practice homosexuality. So there's a... But let me, let me break down. There is only two words. I'm talking, if you just go to the Greek, there's, just, there's two words, okay? There's two distinct words. One is arxenokoitoi and malakoi. I'm not getting... Two different words. And let me define the, the words for you. By the way, revisionists, those who look at the scripture... But then they say, no, that's not what Paul meant. Uh, they say that the condemnation is not talking about, that the condemnation that Paul is referring to here, and you're going to hear this over and over, and you're going to hear this from people who say they're Christians, okay? They will say this. What Paul is condemning is not consensual same-sex relations, you know, where they, where they love each other. He's talking about the abusive, because there was abusive situations there as it is here. You would have, I mean, you had a lot of slaves. A lot of them were brought into this lifestyle through slavery, and they were abused. And Paul would, or the revisionist would say, but that's what he's talking about. That's what Paul's against, the abusiveness, not the same sexness, the abusiveness. I, I think I can prove pretty clear uh, through just through the context that that's not what he's referring to. <clears throat> Well, we've already looked at it. In the Old Testament, homosexuality is condemned. In Romans, he uses an illustration of man's sinfulness. But here he's using both words. Uh, the first word is malakos. Malakos. <clears throat> and again, I just got this from the Walter Bauer lexicon. You can just go there. Actually, I got it through uh, Kevin Dion, but that's where it comes from. The first wor word literally means being yielded to touch. It's, and again, I want to be careful, it's used of soft, or soft clothing, or being effeminate, as in a man who um, is, is more effeminate. It could be used that way, but the primary way it is, is in a relationship, in a, in a marriage, there is a male and female, and, and one is the softer of the other one. One is the female and one is the male. And this word here actually points right directly to the woman. Okay? In other words, but even in a same-sex relationship, you have one who plays the man's role and one who plays the female role. And here the word is, he's pointing to the first one saying, that he, he, being the homosexual, is playing the female role. So again, yielded to touch. Um, it's the passive role. This, this role was often in, in the Greco-Roman Greco culture, was often the, the slave, uh, the lower class. The lower class would be brought into this same-sex relation, and they would play the role of the woman. And so Paul's looking at, and, and by the way, in the Greco-Roman thinking, they were the ones that were sinning. Because that was what they, I'm talking the Greco-Roman, I'm not talking biblical thinking, I'm talking Greco-Roman thinking. In the Greco-Roman thinking, it was, the, it was the male, okay, I'm talking homosexual relation here, I'm talking two men. I'm talking the one man plays the role of the woman. And that woman, that man is, it's unnatural, and therefore they're the ones that, that sins. It's the passive one. In the Greco-Roman thinking, Arsenthikoia is not the sinner. Okay, now literally that word, that's the second word in, this, in, the, in the Greek text in Hebrew, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Um, and it would, again, be found halfway down just before the end of verse 9. And like my version says Sodomites. I wish it wouldn't say Sodomites because it puts it right to Sodom and there's no context of Sodom, but you get the point. You have the, the male, and, I'm going to go like this, male and female. We just covered this role, the passive one. The Greek or Roman said this was the sinner because this man was acting like a woman. It was against nature. That's but that's not what Paul is getting at. Paul's saying, listen, this guy's a sinner, but this guy is also. And so the, other, the second one, the arsenikoitai, uh, arson, uh, arsa means man, koita, koite, you know, bed. Uh, literally, these are, literally the translation is just bedders of men. Men who go to bed with men. Uh, those who take males to bed. And in the Greco, uh, Roman Greco thinking, See, he played the active role. You see this today. I mean, this is what we're talking about. And he plays, the, and he wasn't the sinner because he was acting like a guy. He was just acting like a guy with another guy instead of a guy with a woman, but he wasn't the sinner. He played the active role. This man played the passive role. In fact, this guy in, in that society, first century, these might be the politicians the wealthy businessmen. See, they were the powerful ones and they could walk away from that sexual uh, 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 union there and not be even considered the sinner. But what does Paul say? This is, the, this is the whole point here. You're both sinners. You're both sinners. Whereas the culture says, this guy is unnatural. He's a sinner. You're both sinners. See, that's the whole point of the passage. There is no, or, or to say it this way, uh, homosexual activity is not a blessing to be celebrated, solemnized, but a sin to be repented of, forsaken, and, and forgiven. That's, that's his whole point. It, there is no right person in this scenario. And I will probably leave it at this point. I, I, I mean, again, homosexuality was very rampant. In fact, let me just read this one last. Uh, by Paul's day, homosexuality had been uh, again, rampant in Greece and Rome uh, for centuries. This is not new, nothing new under the sun. In his commentary on this passage, William, William Barclay reports that Socrates was a homosexual. Plato probably was, because in Plato's Symposium on Love, it's basically glorifying homosexuality. It is likely that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexual. Nero, who reigned close to the time of Paul, wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, had a boy named Sporus castrated in order that for the boy to become the emperor's wife, in addition to his natural wife, so he had a natural and then Sporus. And after Nero died, the boy was passed on to one of Nero's successors, Ortho, to use in the same way. What do we find out? The wrath of God allows mankind to go in very perverse ways. Right? Isn't that what we're just talking about? Sinners, sinners, sinners. But the, but the question that Paul answered in Romans chapter 1 is this. Are they so great a sinner that they are beyond the grace of God? Answer emphatically, no. Sure, they're great sinners, but so are we. Okay? Yes, they are great sinners, but so are we. And that's why he adds in this text, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse the last part of verse 9, not only fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, but also thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. He's saying, listen, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Now, I have about 20 minutes left. I, I, well, no, I, I'm, because I want to get to some questions. Sometimes we have truth out here, but how does it play with your life? You're going to have to deal with it. We are all going to have to deal with this. And this is, I'm, I'm saying this again, this is such a big issue. We have to know where we're going, what we believe, and stick together and start really saying, okay, this is what truth is, and this is what the Lordship of Jesus Christ looks like in our lives. Because the world's going to put pressure on you. It's going to put pressure on you, us, this church, our direction, because we are not, the Bible does not go in the direction of the world, right? Okay, so we, this is a big issue, a very big issue. Okay, so let's, let's answer the first qu uh, critical question. Again, answering, and I put in your outline, the hard question, not the easy question. I mean, is homosexuality wrong? 
Yes, that's pretty easy to figure out. I mean, if you, if you don't know that one, then you're, you're right at the beginning, right? And I'm not saying that to try to demean anybody here, but it is very clear in Scripture that homosexuality is wrong. But now how does that, how does that, how do we minister, how do we live in a, in a culture? I remember someone saying there was two great terrorist attacks in America. Two great terrorist attacks in America. Now many of you would say what? Pearl Harbor and 911, right? Actually, that's not the two greatest terror attacks. Roe v. Wade and when marriage got redefined. That was the two terror attacks right there. That was the greatest terror attacks America has ever sustained. When we said a baby was not a baby, and when we said marriage was not marriage, that's the terror attacks, right? So, and it was done by people that weren't even voted in. Um, First question, can a committed homosexual be a Christian? Well, let's just read Paul. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. You know what's making it very difficult to minister to homosexuals in our society? It's the increasing number of people who struggle with a particular temptation, okay, homosexuality, and they're being told by our society, now this is what they're told, that you are that temptation. That's what's making it real. See, you're that temptation. That is your identity. This is your orientation. That is who you are. And if those things are true, then there is no repentance for that. Do you see how that is? Because if this is your identity and orientation, this is who you are, then how do I repent from who I am? Satan has done a really good job of, of deceiving a person caught in sin and saying, this is who you are. You don't have to change. And then you know what's even worse? When Christians come along and say the same thing. Same thing. Oh no, you don't have to change. We're a church who loves homosexuals. Well, I do too, by the way. <laughs> I do too. But I want to see them go from where they are caught in their sin to where they need to be walking with Jesus, don't you? So there's a difference between saying, I love you as a homosexual. Well, we should. But we don't want to see them caught in their sin and stay in their sin, do we? And see, that's what our society says, and quite honestly, that's what a lot of Christians say. That's like me saying, you know, I love child abusers, but I'm going to leave you right there in it. You'd say, you're nuts. What are you talking about? You want to rescue that person. Well... We need to rescue people. See, society, so again, the, uh, the prince of this world has, this is your identity, this is your orientation. And basically this, the rest of the world is simply going to have to come to terms with that. Therefore, give yourselves to it, and as, as uh, Al Mohler says, declare who you are by your sexual or, or romantic longings. In other words, this is who I am. Get used to it. He goes on, he says this. That is what scripture describes as one of the most deadly patterns of human sinfulness. Quote, we are inclined to give ourselves to our sins. We are inclined to that. As sinners, we give ourselves to our sin. And now the world says, and that's fine. And you can stay right there. And other Christians are coming along and saying, yep, that's okay. And they are caught in their sin, and they don't even see why they would need to change. See, society is telling us to give ourselves to our sins. In fact, in Romans 1, if you're still there, look at the very last verse. Because verse 32 shows us that. After all the list of ungodliness, look at verse 32. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, <laughs> what? But approve of those who practice them. Hey, this is who you are. So, let's answer the question. And I'm going to use the term Christian with a qualification here. A person who is a committed homosexual is not a true believer no matter how passionate their claim. Why? And I'm going to quote someone here, John Street. 
when talking about counseling a homosexual, and he's in the counseling ministry, so he's going to come from that. The gospel must be the central discussion early in the ministry to a homosexual. Unbelievers cannot be effectively counseled from Scripture unless they are first evangelized and respond to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're still slaves to sin, dead in their iniquities, having never been regenerated, transformed, or forgiven. And you can go to Romans 6 or Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. They do not live under the same biblical authority, nor are, nor are they indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because, because their soul is dead, they have an unresponsive and hostile heart when it comes to the truth of God's word, end quote. In other words, they need a heart-level spiritual transformation. Now, I am not saying this. I am not saying, please hear me, I am not saying this. Let's say you have a person that comes and they said, I want to receive Christ. I want to move away from my uh, behavior and desire of homosexuality. And they actually get saved. Does that mean they never struggle with that? Well, some of you lust. Do you ever struggle with it still after salvation? Many of you covet. Do you still covet? Many of you are, are constantly gripped by fear, which is idolatry. Do you still fear? Well, yeah, we, there, there can be struggle. By the way, could there even be failure? The person gets saved and actually, you know, goes and uh, reconnects with their, their, their partner and have a, a sexual encounter, even after something. Can that happen? Well, yeah. But again, there's a struggle at this point against sin. Because if, if you truly have Christ in your heart, right? If, if you are truly a believer, what's going to happen? You have repented of your sin, moving towards Christ, which is holiness. And yes, you might, you might, um, you might struggle, but again, the struggle is there. I'm talking about a committed homosexual that says this, this is who I am, get used to it. Well, how can, where's the lordship of Jesus Christ in that statement? Get used to it? Okay, so again, that, that's what, because that's what Paul says in here. Such were some of you, but you were washed. That's regeneration. You were sanctified. Sanctified means that you're being brought to holiness, both in attitude and behavior. And justified, what? Declared righteous. You've been given. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, by the way, the Corinthians are, remember they're a messed up group, they're factious, they're immoral, they're ungodly, and they weren't getting it. See, he writes this to them because they were like on the... Like he says, but you were them. Such were, not such are. Such were some of you. No, there needs to be a change. Now, could you put up the heart thing, babe? Uh -uh, Honey. Valentine, would you put up the heart thing? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I like this. Uh, Well, maybe I can't find it. Yeah. See, the way it should happen is this. The Word of God changes my heart, which changes my thoughts, feelings, and choices. That's biblical transformation right there. I don't know. Did I leave that in my uh, outline with you? Probably not. So the Word of God should affect it. This is how many people live, though, right here. My experience is what determines what I worship and want. And the Word of God better get used to it. That's really what that second one. In fact, uh, one gay, Luke Timothy Johnson, a, a pro-homosexual pro professor of New Testament. Now, did, did you hear what I just said? A pro-homosexual professor of the New Testament. You, you've got very smart people in certain colleges that are promoting this particular sin. But he says this. Now, now, I want you to catch what he's saying. The task, this is a little bit lengthy, but it's worth listening to. The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says, to appeal to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. But what we... But what, what are we to do with what the text says? If we see ourselves as liberal, then we must be liberal in the name of the gospel. I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of the scripture. Now, right there, I don't have to read anymore. 
See, he says this. I know what the Word of God says. But if we're going to be liberal, let's be liberal all the way and reject what the Word of God says. And straightforward commands of Scripture. And appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly, explicitly to the weight of our own experience. Oh, at least he was honest enough to say it. You know what? We know what the Word of God says, and we're going to reject it. But we also know that our experience should be king. And so he says this, We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tell us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. So what he says is this, We know what it says, but I'm going to say my experience is more important because that is the way God has made me. In other words, this is who I am. Get used to it. He goes, or uh, the author, not, end quote. But the author goes on. uh, Oh, let let me continue on with the professor. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premise of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality. So he goes back and he says, but you know what, we know what it says, but we're going to just say, you know what, we don't agree. Again, experience trumps the word of God. You know, we say, how dare he, but actually sometimes we, our experience trumps the word of God. He tell, the word tells us to do something and we still say no, right? Uh, let's see here. I guess we'll just have to move on. I want to get to one. Uh, the author of this book ends one, one final statement. He says, I experience, therefore I am. Attractions form the basis of authentic self. And through this self-defined identity, all of life is interpreted. Truth and morality are important, but secondary. In this scenario, truth and morality are secondary. Sexual attraction and identity are primary. So this over here, the, the priority is my experience. And I'm just trying to help you to understand, because when you're talking to someone that is caught, and I'm going to use that word caught, in that sin, they're going to say, but you don't know who I am. That's their point. This is who I am. This is my identity. This is my orientation. How do you change someone that has been made like this by God? Well, this is how you say it. Well, let's go over here and find out who God is, because we find in Scripture very clearly that God is opposed to that. Okay, so you can't say God made me this way. Even if they ever find, they haven't yet, but if, let's say they find a gene that says it makes, you, uh, that it makes you lean towards homosexuality, what would you say to that? You say this, well sure, Genesis 3, sin changed everything. And if you ever find someone that says this is the, the homosexual gene, yeah, Adam and Eve's sin changed everything. It makes perfect sense. Not like, oh, wow, really? We all have tendencies against God, don't we? So, we're the last people that should ever be shocked. <laughs> you know, give us a sin. We should never say, well, I'm shocked. In fact, I, I think C.S. Lewis had it great. And I'm going to paraphrase it for you. C.S. Lewis said this, quote, If you understand human sinfulness and you understand the power of the human sex drive, your question would not be, why do human beings involve themselves with any number of known sexual sins? But why do men not copulate with rocks? Right? That makes total sense. Why don't they have sex with rocks? Why? Because if if you are a Christian, I think you understand how sinful we are and how strong the sex drive. And if you just go through uh, history, you say, yeah, you can see all kinds of perversions. All kinds of perversions. In fact, I think we need to teach our kids this. Because I think sometimes we teach our kids, you need to be good kids. And they have these raging sex, the sex drive, and they don't know how to do it uh, biblical, and they just think they're on. I've, I've met so many people that say, oh, I, think, I thought I was just the only one. No, you're not the only one. Because you take human sinfulness along with sex drive and you can get into all kinds of perversions. Such 
were some of you. Now, what we want to make sure that we don't tell the unsaved world is this, and this is sometimes how it gets out, that we are just better rule keepers than they are. In other words, come over and join our church because we're better rule keepers. You know what that is? That's just moralism. No, we're not better rule keepers. We have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. We have the same sin principle still within us. There is still a raging sin that would, would want to go against God, except we, we're not better rule keepers. We have been washed and sanctified and justified. And therefore, we can say, thank you, Lord, for salvation. And therefore, you who are caught in your sin, you can receive Christ as well, because we're not better than you. We are not better than you. I think sometimes we think we are. We're not better than you. That's why when, when, when you go to a soccer game and the little boy has uh, two mommies instead of a mommy and a daddy, sometimes what, we, what do we do? We move away from that person. What should we be doing? We need to be moving towards that person. They're the mission field. They're not the enemy. I think sometimes we think they're the enemy. Well, let me... Oh, I, I hate that clock. I have to tell you. How about B? For the sake of our holiness, should we stay away from homosexuals? I just can't. Well, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in the, my epistle not to keep company with the sexual and moral people. Now, this is 1 Corinthians 5, not 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Not to keep company with the sexual and moral people. Uh, I mean, the sexual and moral people of this world. No, that's not what I just read. He didn't say not to keep company with the sexual and moral people of this world. He said this, not to keep company with the sexual and moral people of the world. Yet certainly, I, I did certainly, excuse me, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual and moral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners, idolaters, since then you would have, need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. I mean, this is important stuff in Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 9 to, uh, 9 to 11. Because it answers the question, am I supposed to stay away from homosexuals? No. No. You are to move towards them. They're the mission field. Now, I'll tell you, someone that you need to stay away from is an immoral person who professes themselves to be a Christian. In other words, if you come across a person that says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they are sexually immoral and they are unrepentant, no, I, I, I don't want to even... And he says, don't even eat with that person. Why? Because the eating with that person, you're, you're, <clears throat> you're saying that what you're doing is okay. You're seeking to have fellowship. No, no, that's the person you move away from. The person who says, I am a believer, and yet I'm sexually immoral, I'm not saying one who struggles. Many of you struggle with sexual immorality even. I mean, maybe even just in your mind. I'm not saying that, you, but do you feel guilty? Do you repent? <laughs> you know, do you feel the weight of God's spirit in your life? Are you yearning for holiness? Are you moving towards God? Or are you saying this, get used to it? We move towards the world. We move away from those who profess Christ and are... And are uh, uh, determined to sin, okay? So again, we're not talking about those who struggle with sin or an accountability for their sin and, and are struggling through it and are learning, you know, principles on how to have victory. We're talking about the person who says, as a, as a, a, as a, uh, a believer, they say they're a believer, listen, you don't have any right to tell me what to do. That's the person Paul says. You move away from that person. A professed brother, so-called brother. But the person that you go to the game and they're playing soccer and he has two mommies, you move towards that person. Don't you want to see them come to Christ? But we've established something here. If they come to Christ, they need to re repent of their sin, right? Even that sin. So you move towards them with the hope that through your love and kindness towards them, by the way, it's not a hit and run. I, I would hope that if, as, as you are ministering to, to one caught in that sin, I'm going to use it that way, that you would really want to develop a friendship with them. See, a hit and run is this. You have the gospel track, and you kind of throw it over the fence. 
towards them. Hey, read this, it'll help you. No, I'm talking about actually befriending that person, actually wanting to minister to that person, actually having that person or both, uh, both women or both men in your house and say, you know what, I, I'd really like to know. I'd like to know your story. Most of us, don't we get kind of fearful of that? Hmm. You know, because we kind of put out we're better than them. I mean, it's been convicting. I've got to find myself someone I can minister in this, in this category. I mean, I'm saying, why not? I, I, hey, they need salvation. They need Christ. Let me end with this final one. And I know I have really rushed through this, and we'll try to finish up next week. Should a Christian go to a same-sex wedding? That's one of the biggest questions that you're going to have to answer, and you're going to have to answer it solidly, and you better answer it very carefully and be consistent about it, Right? Now, some of us have thrown the baby out with the bathwater years ago because we knew that a Christian should never marry a non-Christian, and we went to one of those weddings. Have you ever been to a, where a Christian was marrying a non-believer, and we knew it was wrong, but we went there anyway? Why? Because we were going to do what? Support the person, right? That's what we said. We were supporting the person, not, not celebrating the union. Well, in some respects, the same argument holds true right here. I hear it all the time. Should a Christian go to a same-sex wedding? Let me give you three words to remember. The first one is celebration. Celebration. And, and, and to say it this way, if you go to a wedding where it's same-sex, you are celebrating it. You can't get away from that. Let me give you the answer to this right up front. The simple answer is this, no. Should a Christian go to a same-sex wedding? No. That's the simple answer. Why? First of all, you are celebrating it. No, no, you don't understand. I'm supporting the person. Did you hear what you just said? You're supporting the person in a sinful choice. It, it will come down the pike. You, you can all but guarantee we'll get into polygamy. Are you going to support that? Some guy's going to want to marry his dog. Are you going to support that? Right? In the Roman time, they, one tried to marry his horse. Uh, the point is it gets very perverse. Celebration is part of it. That's the first word. And, and our society does not want us simply to tolerate. See, some people say, well, they want us to tolerate. No, they want us to tolerate it for sure. They want us to legislate it what we've already done. We, they want us to accommodate it, but finally, they want us to celebrate it. The end game is this. You're not going to just tolerate this. You will celebrate it with us. Because until that happens, they haven't been complete. The war has not been won. You have to celebrate. Remember years back when in the Book, book of Common Prayer, this question was asked, you're all sitting there, and I would, I would be up here as a pastor, and, and they would be, I would be marrying somebody, and I might say something like, if anyone knows any cause why this, that should prevent this marriage, speak now or forever, hold your peace. What were you saying at that moment? We are witnesses, we are affirming this, and we are celebrating this. That's what marriage, that's what marriage ceremonies have always done. You come as a witness, not just to support, you come to celebrate. So the first key word is celebrate. Can you celebrate, as a Christian, walking with Jesus Christ, a same-sex union? Can you do that? If you say yes, then I, I'm going to ask you to reevaluate who your God is. Right? But you don't understand, John, the pressure. Well, now you've identified. It's, not, it's the pressure that's making you choose, not God. So celebration is the first one. The second one is commitment to the Lord and his truth. Commitment. They're all C's. Celebration, commitment. Matthew 10 says this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's pretty clear. Or I could say it this way, Are you willing to suffer and sacrifice for truth? And then finally, number three, never violate, final C, your conscience. Your conscience. It's your guard. 
It's your guard. It's guarding you. And in Romans 14.23, it says this, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Now, he's talking about eating, but it can be applied to, because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Don't violate your conscience. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing stories. This is where it gets really hard. A husband and wife is invited to a same-sex marriage. And the husband, let's say, or the wife, drags the spouse to get with it. And the, and the spouse does not want to go. Why? Because it's violating that person's conscience. And you know what that other spouse is saying? I don't care. That is very sad. I am willing to hurt your spiritual walk. Actually, because of the fear of man. Celebration, commitment, conscience. Let me close with these thoughts. The church is a hospital. Do you believe that? The church is a hospital. But in order to have help, you have to have a clear diagnosis. You have to have a clear diagnosis. And I've hoped, hopefully in four weeks, I've given you a clear diagnosis. Number two, speaking the truth is the loving thing to do. Speaking the truth is a loving thing. It's not like that's the unloving. I, I want to be loving. You know what being loving is? This is the truth. Number three, friendship many times trumps lordship. Let's make sure it's reversed in your life. That lordship trumps friendship. So if a person says, but you don't know the pressure I'm in under to capitulate, just remember this, lordship should trump friendship or any relationship. And then finally, the fear of man often dominates over the fear of the Lord. Right? See, we want to be the hero of the world. And yet in doing so, I think we become the rejecter of what God's word says. It becomes very self-serving. And I understand the pressure. I, I mean, I, Sol, Sol and I have talked about this over and over again. What do we do? How do we counsel? How do we help? This is a huge thing. This is going to come like, this is coming like a flood. This is coming like a tsunami. This is because every one of you are going to be hit over and over again. This is why I say, this is a bigger issue than any of us. We need to stick together. We need to say, this is what God's word says. This is why we do what we do. And you will be called odd, hurtful. Oh, you don't care about people. You don't care to support. You don't care to be there. You don't care to be in relationship. And what you have to say is, you know what? Lordship trumps friendship. I'm following Jesus Christ. That's the point. Wisdom, Lord, so that we might be ambassadors for you, good witnesses for you, that we could truly honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.